Can you guys hear me or is this like, is this messing with your project? This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever this week by Tablet senior writer Liel Leibowitz. Hello to you. And Tablet deputy editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. Hello there. We should give you a public service announcement at the beginning of this episode that we are recording on Tuesday as the entire world's eyes are on Iowa. (laughs) And we have no idea this morning who will emerge from that contest victorious. (laughs) It is one of these weird wrinkles in time where you listening on Thursday may know that in fact, Andrew Yang is now the front runner for the nomination. Andrew Yang and Michael Bennett, is he still in the race? Are the... (laughs) are the front runners but we don't know that here because who would have thought that technology could actually go wrong and backfire this is completely unprecedented never happened before this week i am talking with mark galley who for seven years was the editor of christianity today a glossy magazine that i once called the people magazine of evangelicals and they didn't like that but that was a little <laughs> bit unfair to me and he retired Christ, from that. He's just like us. <laughs> uh, who wore it better? <laughs> and he retired from that post on January 3rd, and he's now in private life, fly fishing, and doing whatever retired Christian editors do. Can you do. ever really and go back was... to private life after that? <laughs> and he also retired with a bang, if I'm yeah, not mistaken, truly. right? Yes, he did. He retired with a salvo uh, saying that Donald Trump should no longer be president, needs to be removed from office one way or another. And that caused many evangelical ripples which are quiet ripples that sing in four-part harmony in church. He talked with us, and it was a, a, a wonderful interview. I'm really excited uh, to play it. It's it's one of those. He is a serious Gentile of the week. Also, we're going to bring you what you really want, what you need, which is our annual Oscar preview with tablet-contributing movie critic and maven Jordan Hoffman. I don't know if you could tell, but my energy is just like very, very clean, very strong right now. I just got back from Sedona, Arizona, the new age capital of the world. And I'm feeling incredible. I don't, I didn't know you were going there. Is this vacation? Look, is this I work? sometimes Did... do things that you guys don't know about. It happens wow. very, very rarely. <laughs> Only to later wow. talk about them in this year's show. Yes, That's of course. I mean, why do I do anything? I went, we, I try to do a yearly trip with my two college besties, Irene and Kat. We haven't done it for like three years. So we decided to go, to go big on this one and go like wellness, self care, hashtag everything. Open all the chakras. So we were in Sedona and we signed up for the sound bath because of course when in Sedona you must do a sound bath and so we're, we're it's a group sound bath and so we we get there, we get in the van and we're, we're all chit-chatting. It's the three of us and a couple and you know they're saying oh what do you do and I said you know I'm, I host the world's leading Jewish podcast and of course this woman says <laughs> oh I work at a podcast company. Turns out she knows Sue, our wonderful ad rep. Oh, And I was like great. what? And then the the woman leading the sound bath said, oh, what kind of podcast is it? And I said, it's the leading Jewish podcast on iTunes. And she says, oh, um, do you know the Jewish exponent? My my mother-in-law used to work there in Philly. And I was like, can I get away? <laughs> can I get some like, like crystal energy going? In. I will say I was like deeply moved by the sound bath. I was very surprised, but I was like. Wait, what is a sound bath? So you basically, we, what we did was we laid on blankets on this mountain. It's called Rachel's Knoll, a very spiritual place. And there's sort of like um, bowls that she has. And she, like, a, I don't know what, what, what motion I'm doing right now, but she basically makes a sound circular. with the bowls, with a like sort of like a. Not like a mallet, oh, but something. And then okay. she plays the flute. And I'm telling you, like, I'm a deeply cynical person. I was lying there and she would walk over as and like bring the sound to you. And I would, I started crying every time she did it. Like, cause like the vibrations, it was insane. Like I was totally ready for it to be like kind of BS and just fun <laughs> and funny. And I, I, it was real. What's going on with you, Liel? Well, I see Stephanie's spiritual experience and I raise her, I think a much more profound spiritual experience because this Ooh. week, uh, keeping in line with basicness, 
I have joined the ranks of those who pellet. I got a Peloton. Which, to those of our listeners who are smart and grounded, is a ridiculously expensive uh, exercise bike that comes with a large uh, touch screen that uh, broadcasts classes. And you could just take your classes whenever you want and spin to the music and pay way, way too much for what is basically a giant pyramid scheme, which I acknowledge. However, it is wonderful. I'm really proud of you. I'm happy for you. I like this. I, I like it too. Let's be honest with our listeners here. Let's let's talk talkless here. You know, you are a, a man of noble proportions. That I you. am. And periodically you go on a kick of making your proportions less noble. Is that what's going on here? Or have you decided time to step off the scales and step onto the Peloton? Like what's the project here? I think it's two things. So first of all, no doubt. You're 100% correct. At some point, like... I got so fat. I'm like, you know what? I just need to be like just a little bit more in control. This is just like not that healthy and not that fun. But there is a deeper layer to it. And the deeper layer is that these things, those spin classes, to those of our listeners who have never done them, they come with this ridiculous language like, it's time to put more truth on the wheel. I have to tell you, Mark, I I cannot express enough (laughs) how much joy and pleasure this brings me. I did these classes and like, it's so new aging, it's so wonderful. And I'm thinking to myself, I think our friends in Chabad are missing out on a huge (laughs) opportunity. Chabad should release, I'm willing to give them the idea for free. Chabad should release the Chabaik, which is a Peloton type bike in which a rabbi, a chassid in full dressing, you know, sits there and does exercise classes while giving you like little lessons from the Tanya. Oh, no, no, no. He merges it with Dafyomi. <laughs> oh my, be... every day, yes, you ride to right. the Daf. Every day, you get 15 minutes and you ride and you get your page of Talmud a day. Psycho and seven Yomi. and a half years I'm later, actually in for isn't it. that amazing? Yeah. Plus look, the Peloton's like nicest feature is that you could just do a free ride and they have like these amazing videos of like rides all throughout like the most beautiful places. Oh, it literally looks like right, you're outside. In the world. So the Chabaik would just have a feature where you like bike to New York City and you have to Ask people, excuse me, are you Jewish? Excuse me, are you Jewish? Like, as you go along, that'd be great. <laughs> you basically just follow the mitzvah tank exactly, in, up 6th this, Avenue. Wait, it's, you a, are in the mitzvah it's, it, it's a virtual reality experience where you're basically mitzvah tanking along Union Square. That's exactly what I'm saying. And look, this Peloton, to get back on track, it's everything I need right now. It's exercise. <laughs> it's like very bad 80s, like power balance. And it's uh, like pop spirituality. I'm very happy. I will say that I think if we're talking about like the decline of organized religion and and we across the board, right? Young people aren't going to temple or church or on a soul cycle. Yeah, like there is a way in which this new wave of faux spiritual exercise, right? Because you can't just exercise anymore. There has to be a higher purpose. I actually believe that is part of the mm-hmm. the reason. Like if you get if you're getting spirituality three times a week in a dark room okay. somewhere, why do you need to do it right. on Saturdays? Speaking of religion and spirituality and ritual, as we know, the Super Bowl happened and one Oppenheimer and one Oppenheimer only watched it, at least at Oppenheimer Manor North in New Haven. That Oppenheimer would have been Rebecca in previous years, who, of course, has been obsessed with the NFL. But as I think I might have told you, I can't remember how much we talked about this, she decided that she was boycotting the NFL this year because she was very critical of the league's response to domestic violence by players. So although she kept the NFL notifications on her phone, so she knew when anyone was traded or placed on waivers or was on the disabled list, she knew everything. Like she could name the roster of every team. She did not actually watch any games this year. And I watch one game a year, which is the Super Bowl. I always watch the Super Bowl, but no other games. That's your spiritual practice. That's my practice. It's an annual Just the high holiday. And I thought, 
maybe we'll watch this game together. Like maybe she will have had her year of boycott. I will have my year of ignorance and we will watch this game together while eating Doritos. And, uh, and no, I turned on the game and she popped her head in at one point, watched some ads. And then when the game came back on, I saw her flinch, like, do I stay? And then she walked out before the kickoff. And uh, that was it. She, she, she went in the other room and rented Bridesmaids and watched Bridesmaids with her earbuds in. <laughs> Good for her. Good for her. News of the June. N-O-T-J. It's getting kind of bad for the Jews here in the United States. Many episodes of anti-Semitism every week. We get email updates for this sort of thing. The most interesting one this week, uh, a woman in the Hudson River Valley was charged with throwing a piece of pork at a synagogue. She's been charged with a hate crime for throwing pork chops at a synagogue in Columbia County. What do we even make of this? Can I just say, this is a hot take, but I was pretty impressed with her for her action. She could have gone with like the very cheap kind of, you know, $2 a pound pork. She went with a pork shop. That is both an expensive and, in my mind, a semi-respectful thing if you're going to go hate crime. Can I just read this to you? Please. Rios, on January 9, between the hours of 5.23 p.m. and 3.28 a.m., threw a package of pork chops, a non-kosher food, onto the front steps of the congregation Anche Emeth, causing pork fluids to be spilled onto its steps, according to a criminal complaint. That is just, like, so gory, gross, and, like, Carrie-esque. I mean, it's really... Pork fluids was the name of my high school band. (laughs) And then she went back in the morning to photograph it. It's just really weirdly specific. My first thought when I read this, was, well, if it's a reformed temple, they'll just take the pork chops inside and cook them and have, you know, have a nice kiddish that week. So last week was like reform movement kindness week. This week's right. kiddish is sponsored by the Klan. <laughs> and honestly, no judgment here. I mean, really, like, it's food. And if you eat treif, as many, many people, as most American Jews do, and more power to them, then you take it inside, you fry it up, and you have a nice pork cutlet. But... It does seem that the shul that she threw the pork chops at was a conservative synagogue. And this is what's really diabolical about it, right? Because the conservative synagogue, most of your members, in fact, do eat pork, but they pretend not to eat pork. And the rabbi pretends not to eat pork. And the synagogue doesn't allow pork to be cooked on its premises. So what she's doing is she's throwing them this tasty cut of meat that they all really would like to enjoy at their own homes that day after synagogue. (laughs) But she's throwing it at the synagogue. She's shedding light on the schism of American Judaism. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, she went like right into the hypocritical soul of American Judaism. She's a one-woman theological seminary. Oh, my. It just feels like a waste of perfectly good pork. (laughs) Our Gentile of the Week is Mark Galley, the former editor-in-chief of Christianity Today. In December, he shocked the readership of his evangelical magazine by publishing an editorial in which he attacked Donald Trump and said that the man must be removed from office. This is not what readers of the magazine founded by Billy Graham a half century ago expected to read, and perhaps Galley's retirement a few weeks later came at a convenient time. I had the pleasure of talking with Mark Galley about evangelicalism, politics within its ranks, internecine warfare, and what he plans to do with his retirement. Have a listen. We have more time than you would have on 
most NPR shows, which yes, is nice. Yes, that's, that's why I agreed to do it, because I the television things I've done are like five to seven minutes, and you can't say anything of any significance in that amount of time. So This is, I hope, going to be the smartest, most expansive interview you've done. So Okay, great. Um, until January 4th, Mark Galley was the editor of Christianity Today, an old evangelical magazine founded by Billy Graham about Christians and their place in America and very occasionally uh, their place in politics, although it's not a political magazine. On December 19th of last year, just three weeks before Mark's tenure as the editor-in-chief ended, Christianity Today ran an editorial saying that Donald Trump should be impeached. And if you were paying attention to the small micro world of evangelical Christian culture, you would see this caused a huge outcry. And Mark went and did the rounds of all of the shows trying to explain why exactly Christianity Today would turn against Donald Trump in an age when the vast majority of evangelical readers uh, support Donald Trump. Mark's here to talk about that. But before we get to that, and we will get to that, I promise. Let's start at the very beginning. Tell me about your upbringing. Where, where do you come from? So I was uh, baptized a Catholic, took First Communion, and then my family didn't attend church after those events. Uh, but my mother had a conversion experience, a very classical evangelical conversion experience. She had some personal troubles in her life, and she'd sort of made a bargain with God. And when she said if the Lord would do this one thing for her, she would give her life to Christ. Well, that thing happened that afternoon, in fact. And the next time Billy Graham was on TV, when Billy Graham turned to the camera and said, you at home can get on your knees and accept Jesus, my mother did that. When my mother got into something in our family, everybody got into it. So <laughs> she was dragging us to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And as a 13-year-old at the time, it did start to make an impression on me. And eventually, I did the classic evangelical going forward during an altar call, got up from my seat in the church and went forward and prayed the sinner's prayer. And my motives weren't tremendous, I will have to admit. I was just doing it so I wouldn't feel guilty anymore. I didn't really understand what I was doing. Who, who can understand such a commitment at age 13? Even at age 67, who can understand it? But I believe that the Lord has kind of held me fast to that decision, and the life I've lived since that has been deeply shaped by evangelical Christianity in many, many ways, and that sort of set me on my life course. Can we back up one second? Most of our listeners are going to have no idea what the sinner's prayer is. What is it, and is, is that how you become a Christian when you're not one? Yeah, it's framed in various ways, but it, it amounts to having a couple of things in it. One is a repentance for one's sin, and a turning to Christ, and a, a verbal affirmation that a the person will believe that Christ has died for their sins and forgives them and uh, commits their life to Christ. What I was hoping for was that the next Sunday I wouldn't feel guilty when the pastor made the altar call. Uh, I was trying to get rid of that feeling. I didn't want to have to endure that every Sunday henceforth. Well, son of a gun, if I didn't feel just as guilty the next Sunday, which was the first inkling that maybe there's more than spiritual things going on in a service and in an altar call. Maybe there's some frankly, psychological manipulation. But even though, as I said, I've, I, I understand that all those things get mixed up in religion, there's still something really genuine that was going on at that moment. And uh, as I said, even though it didn't solve my immediate problem, it felt like I had done something significant that I needed to commit to, and the Lord has been good enough to help me be committed to it. What kind of church was it? It was an evangelical free church. It was very conservative. It was in Felton, California, which is... Uh, outside of Mount Hermon, I'd say about 80 miles south of San Francisco. 
I remember very little from the church, but it was very formative in my understanding of what it meant to be a Christian and to grow in the Christian life. Probably more than anything, what was instilled in me there is the centrality of the Bible in shaping one's Christian life. Now, a lot of listeners, I would say a lot of Americans, don't know what evangelical means. They think it means the same thing as fundamentalist, or they think it just means a certain style of worship. They think it's something they saw on late night TV. Could you sort out those terms for us? You said that's when you became an evangelical Christian and that the church was very evangelical. Yeah. What does that mean? Well, evangelicalism is a movement that you can date it starting in various times. Probably in America, it began with the Great Awakening of George Whitfield and John Wesley. They're preaching in the 1730s in which they preached about the need to be born again. You know, it's one of those movements that's not easy to just uh, have clean borders about, but it is characterized by a, a number of themes. So one is the need to have a personal relationship with Christ, not just a formal religious relationship or not just a formal religious life. There's something dynamic and personal about that life. So one of the thoughts there would be, unlike, say, Catholicism, where it's mediated by these priests and these sacraments, and they're the ones who have the personal relationship with Christ, for evangelicals, there's a pastor, there's a message, you might take communion, but the relationship is directly from the worshiper all to God. Yes, that would be the, that's how I would put the emphasis. There is a whole wing of Catholicism today that does appreciate the more evangelical way of approaching things. So they do, they kind of do a both and. Right. The church mediates the grace but they also hope people have a very personal relationship with Jesus. I think that's something many of them have adopted from uh, Protestantism or evangelicalism. So that's one element. Other elements are like scripture is a high authority. All matters of faith and practice are determined by the Bible. Uh, it's very Christocentric in the sense, and it's crucicentric, meaning Jesus Christ stands at the center and his death on the cross is a central theme by which we understand and live our faith. And then there's also an element of very active service in the world, both preaching the word, that is to say, telling people about the good news of the gospel, meaning what Christ has done for us on the cross and how it can forgive our sins and lead us to eternal life, and also acts of service, acts of mercy, feeding the hungry, uh, working in the areas of sexual trafficking and other, other areas like that. That's a constellation of things that make up an evangelical. And then a subset of evangelicals are fundamentalists, and that would mean pretty much that they believe the Bible is literally true or true in translations that were divinely inspired. So there's no room for interpretation. The idea is that they're not interpreting, they're just relating exactly what's in the book. Is that fair to say? Well, they think they're interpreting it literally exactly what's in the book, but of course, anybody who thinks about these things any deeply knows that everybody brings some interpretation to no matter what sure, they read. Sure. But I think the distinction with fundamentalists is they do tend to take more stories as literal and historical. So a fundamentalist would say the story of Jonah and the whale or the big fish really did happen as it is described. The story of Adam and Eve is a literal historical account of the creation of the world. Now, evangelicals would divide on that. There would be some that would be more literal in their interpretation, but some less so. I think one of the dividing markers between fundamentalists and evangelicals is this, and this would give you an insight into the modern version of evangelicalism that was, in a sense, started by and championed by Billy Graham, among others. And that is, he wanted to break away, and many other leaders, uh, which your audience would not know their names, but people like Carl Henry and John Ockengay, they basically said, we want to retain the strong fundamental beliefs of our faith, but we don't want to necessarily be stuck to them rigidly and literalistically in every case. And second, we want to engage the modern world. 
We want to be involved in issues of social justice and social concern. We want to be able to engage our world, whereas fundamentalists are fundamentally separatists. They want to withdraw from the world. I'm going to interrupt here because I think this never occurred to me till now, but a lot of our Jewish listeners will see immediately an analogy to what we would call modern Orthodox versus Haredi or ultra-Orthodox. And, and the big distinction there, I mean, there are many, but the big distinction there is the relationship to the secular world, right? Is do you need Torah and nothing else, which would be a more Haredi position, that all truths are going to be found in Torah? Or is it also worthwhile to go to a secular university, perhaps, and learn science and learn mathematics and learn geology and that where there are tensions, they can be reconciled and that you'll be able to hold to the strong Torah-based principles while still being a citizen of modernity, basically. That's a very good analogy. And in both cases, there's a lifestyle component too. And in terms of fundamentalists, probably you're going to find more of them thinking we should live in neighborhoods with other fundamentalists. We have to go through our days protecting our children from sinful influences from modernity. There are a lot of evangelicals who don't necessarily relate to the modern world with quite as much fear. Right. I'm very good friends with at least one modern Orthodox, and he and I regularly make that comparison. The modern Orthodox and evangelicals, just like you've described, are attempting to retain the kind of classic Orthodox views and practices of their world while engaging the modern world. Okay, so you become an evangelical Christian when you're 13 years old. From age 13, take us to the point where you become editor of Billy Graham's old magazine, Christianity Today. Well, I went to uh, UC Santa Cruz for my undergraduate work, and then somewhere in that process, I felt a call to ministry. I felt I was called to become a minister. I was in the Presbyterian Church at the time, so into Presbyterian ministry. So I ended up going to Fuller Theological Seminary, which is an evangelical seminary in Southern California. Got ordained. I spent four and a half years actually in Mexico City in an English-speaking congregation. And then I spent six years in Sacramento, California, as a pastor of a small church. And during my time as a pastor, I started writing for a magazine called Leadership Journal, which is a magazine for pastors. And I was doing uh, small articles, book reviews, this and that. And the editor one day called and said, would I like to apply for a job? I didn't accept that first offer, but a few months later when the offer was repeated, it felt like that was something I should at least try. And so I did. And it turned out to be a really good fit. Well, the magazine Leadership Journal, it was owned by Christianity Today at the time. And at one point, the Christianity Today ministry owned like 10 or 11 magazines, and Leadership Journal was just one of them. In a sense, I got my foot in the door there. I was an associate editor. And it just seemed like everything I touched worked really well. I didn't realize I had this gift of being able to take manuscripts that were indecipherable but had something to say and turn them into something that people could read and get something out of called editing. So I kept on getting promotions. So eventually I was asked to uh, apply for the position of managing editor at the flagship magazine, Christianity Today. That was around the year 2000. And so I became managing editor, and then I was promoted to editor-in-chief in 2012, 2013. And then I finished my stint at the ministry. So I was, I was with the ministry 30 years altogether, 20 years with the flagship magazine. So under your tenure, when people said, what is Christianity Today? What, what did you tell them? How did you describe your magazine? It is a magazine for evangelical specifically evangelical leaders, that is to say people who are in positions of leadership either in the church or in the parachurch or in business or in medicine, people who want to think more deeply about the faith and understand how their faith interacts with the, with the larger world. When I was covering religion pretty regularly for the New York Times, I read Christianity Today and I thought of it and I now realize this was probably wrong. 
But I thought of it as a pretty conservative Christian magazine without thinking that within evangelicalism, some people thought it was too liberal. After you wrote that editorial in December calling for Trump's impeachment, a lot of the pushback came from people who said, look, they only have 80,000 subscribers and the subscribers are pretty liberal. They're not the kind of conservative evangelicals that make up Trump's base and indeed make up most of evangelicalism. What about that is right and what about that is wrong? Well, we certainly are left of, you know, this is a, this is a silly sentence. We're left of the people who are on the right. <laughs> uh, and so it, <laughs> <Me too. laughs> it, it, it's understandable that they would then throw us into the camp of being liberal. But just because one is more liberal than someone doesn't make them a liberal. We work really hard at being a centrist magazine, which means we like to include center-right voices and center-left voices. But there is a wing of evangelicalism that is much more liberal than Christianity today. It's represented by magazines like Sojourners. They would be best described as progressive evangelicals, and they tend to be fairly liberal on many political uh, issues. One of the things I've noticed is that liberal journalists like me uh, although I don't think I've fallen into this error myself, but a lot of my colleagues love writing articles about the rising evangelical left. They want there to be a politically left-wing or politically progressive evangelicalism. And of course, they always quote Jim Wallace, who edits Sojourner's Magazine. And there are other people, and you and I both know the names, but but most of my listeners won't, who always turn up being quoted, uh, some of them from the black church, but some of them from predominantly white Christianity as well, as you know, the rising left political left of evangelicalism. But honestly, I feel like the thing that I text my friends when I read these articles is like, yeah, they found like seven of the 25 politically left-wing evangelicals, like that there just aren't that many. And what's more, that they have no electoral clout, that whereas the politically conservative evangelicals have swayed many, many elections on the local, state, and national levels, it would be really hard to find even one election anywhere where you can say the voting bloc that really made a difference was politically left-wing or politically liberal or progressive evangelical Christians. I just don't think they exist much. I think you're absolutely right. It's a very small wing of evangelicalism that only has moral clout only within among its own followers. And it's fair to say what some of the critics of my editorial have said is that we only represent a minority of evangelicalism, and that's factually true. <laughs> There's no question about it. But we do represent a fair number of people who are leaders of kind of what I'd call centrist evangelical establishment organizations like Christianity Today, Wheaton College, University Press, World Relief, World Vision. So the numbers might be small, but the people who actually read us and have influence in these institutions, they're fairly powerful in that regard. How do you vote? Uh, I tend to be, uh, in terms of my kind of political views, I tend to be center-right, uh, which is, so it's kind of funny that they, some of the critics were accusing me of being in the pocket of the Democratic Party. Uh, you know, my favorite Obama McCain, who did Obama McCain, who did you vote for? I think I voted for, you know, I, you have to understand I'm not a political person. So it's hard for me sometimes to even remember who I voted for. I believe I voted for McCain. Was McCain the fir his first opponent? Yeah, it was McCain Palin, McCain and Sarah Palin. Yeah. So I tended to vote for McCain partly because I just felt his experience in international affairs would be really helpful. I, I honestly didn't think Obama had much as much experience as he needed to become president. What about Romney? Did you vote Obama or Romney? I believe I voted for Obama in that case. Having been a person who's been in an administrative position, my reason for voting for Obama in that case was it takes you a long time to learn what the heck you're supposed to be doing. And I would think it's even more true of the president of the United States. So my feeling is I tend to vote for the incumbent during the second term unless he's doing a horrible job because I feel like now he's probably learned something 
and he may be able to actually be able to do something constructive for the second part. A lot of times it has less to do with the actual policies at hand, but either the character or the experience of the person who's actually going to be the president. So Trump, Clinton, you voted you voted for Hillary, I'm guessing. Nope. Third party. I found both Trump and Hillary deeply disturbing in, in different ways, and I felt like I could not cast my vote for either one. Okay. So you're what I would call a sane human being. Uh, <laughs> you know, you're in my you're in my elite country club of seven. It's not restricted. Jews are welcome. Evangelicals <laughs> okay. are welcome. I think you would argue, and I would argue, that there used to be more of these people in all parties. We spend a lot of time on our show talking about the ways in which the left has gone crazy, and I've been very candid about my regret over that as someone who comes out of progressive traditions in my family and in my own personal system of beliefs. Let's talk a little bit about the evangelical political right. This was a community of people who voted for President Carter, according to some polls. I mean, this was a a group of people who were not in the pocket of the Republican Party, were not overwhelmingly committed to the Republican Party until Reagan, which was seen as a huge shift because Reagan, of course, was was divorced. And that was seen as a huge no-no. And sometime between 1976 and 1980 and today, evangelicals have become almost uniformly Republican. So the question is why? Well, there's a couple things going on at a macro level, I think. One is that evangelicals, their socioeconomic place in the country has risen in the last few decades, uh, starting in the 1970s, so that they've kind of joined the American middle class and the American upper middle class. So their interests, their their economic interests tend to align. Uh, they're more sympathetic to the interest, you know, to the Republican Party who uh, and their conservative economic policies. I think that a lot of the class issues are going on with that. It's certainly true that when I was young, evangelicals might have been much more blue-collar and much more just plain old middle class. And as I grew, I'm one of them, I've grown into a white-collar situation. I'm upper middle class and with all that goes with that, and I have much more sympathy with government proposals that will protect my income. (laughs) (laughs) It's the way it goes when you start making more money. So I think that's one element. The other is a increasing frustration leading to anger about the drift of American culture and its values. As you well know, you know, starting in the 60s, there was a literal sexual revolution, and that that's only accelerated in the 2000s. And so a lot, a lot of the things that evangelicals were born into and raised, they're deteriorating before their very eyes. Add to that the fact that many of the, especially more conservative Trump voters and rural Trump voters, have been left out of the neoliberal economy that has been accelerating since the day of Reagan, and they've been just literally left behind. And then the fact that so many other people who have not been here that long or have not put in their dues as evangelicals think they have are getting put to the front of the line, sexual minorities, African-Americans, immigrants. It's just really frustrating, super frustrating for them to see this thing disappearing before their very eyes. This is especially why I think they've been attracted to Donald Trump because he appeals to that, that anger and that frustration. He's going to make America great again. Of course, he doesn't really define what that means. So everyone who listens to it thinks, yeah, I remember when America was great. I want that to happen again. But I think there's a lot of that going on. And to be frank, I can sympathize with a lot of it. I just think our culture is in moral decline. And I do think we have some serious social and political and moral issues that we're, I think we're failing on. And I think our, uh, our, we're losing our, our grasp on what it means to be an American. So I, I can sympathize with that, with their, their frustration. Could we also add that there is a frustration with what they perceive as elite liberal bias, both from liberal media and liberal politicians? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a big thing, right? That they think people like me look down on them. Right. 
And they have for a long time. I mean, I remember once uh, on and off, I listened to NPR, and uh, this was years ago. I was given a donation, or they phoned to ask for a donation, and I told the guy, I said, yeah, I'll give you a donation. I said, can I give you one piece of advice, though? Whenever you guys report on evangelicals, you, you do it with such disdain. You have to realize that there are people like me who identify as an evangelical and would like to hear reporting on them by people like you, but can you treat us with a little more respect? <laughs> and he made a note of that, And but I suspect he was getting other comments because it was from that point forward that I noticed that NPR started to treat evangelicals with a little more respect when they reported on them. And I've seen that shift in the New York Times, the Atlantic, over the last few decades, but for, for decades, the reporting by the mainstream media was just, it was contempt. There was always a tone of contempt underneath it. I, I think there often still is. I mean, and it's certainly there for Orthodox Jews. I mean, the contempt is there and, and the lack of understanding, the fact that there's so few people in newsrooms who are themselves Orthodox believers of one faith or another, or even know any or have friends. Who no, I, I agree mean, with you. The, I agree with that. It's, yeah. it's a... It's a huge, huge problem, and they don't see it, and they really don't see it. They really believe that they're being even-handed and being fair, and, and they're wrong. So there is a lot of resentment, yeah. I would add to that. There's increasing resentment. So I think they feel, they're feeling marginalized by the mainstream culture, the main TV outlets, the main newspaper outlets. I think that's one of the reasons they're so attracted to Fox News, because it's an alternative for them. <laughs> to being treated with contempt. Can the progressive cultural world, again, that I live in pretty happily, right, which is a world in which they're going to be happy gay characters on television and often happy trans characters on television, and they're going to be interracial marriages, and there occasionally is going to be someone who has an abortion, as, of course, evangelicals do too, right? Right, right. Whereas that's seen as regrettable and shameful, perhaps necessary, but ultimately highly regrettable in evangelical culture when it happens, it sometimes is seen as a responsible choice on a mainstream TV network, right? So can TV be what it is and can liberals be who they are as culture makers, and we are mostly the culture makers, and still have a political program that speaks to the needs of people who've been left behind by the globalist economy and that pulls in people who culturally are not liberal, who are who are culturally conservative. Can that rapprochement happen or is it too shattered now? Like, will, will these two worlds simply never agree on a candidate? I think it can happen. I don't know if uh, it will lead to the agreement of a candidate, but I think when it comes to issues like gay characters on TV sitcoms and other things of that sort, I think what evangelicals feel, and I, I, mean, I even feel it as a center-right, center person, I just feel like the agenda of the left is set by the radical left, and it's being shoved down our throats. And it's like, okay, I get it. There are gay people in the world, and they want to get married. I get it. That's fine. But do I have to constantly be told this and finger-wagged about it? And it's just like so tiresome after a while. I mean, I know a lot of, a lot of even conservative evangelicals, they disagree with uh, a gay lifestyle naturally because of their beliefs about the Bible. But they often have gay friends and they often try to get along with them as best as they can. I mean, here's, here's an example, not in the area of sexuality, but I have a member of my church, a, a woman who's deeply suspicious of Muslims and letting Muslims into the country because she's really concerned about terrorism. But she has a Muslim woman who lives down the street from her. What does she do? She goes and has tea with that woman every week. To try to understand Islam more, she went to visit the imam. Have her views on Islam changed? Well, maybe a little bit, but she's still an ardent evangelical Christian. But she doesn't have any problem trying to befriend and be a genuine neighbor to someone she deeply disagrees with. And I think that's true of a lot of evangelicals, as long as they don't feel like the culture is trying to shove something down their throat. And I think like the, the cake, the big cake, 
incident and the right. photography incident. Right. Those are one of those instances where they're saying, give me a break. We would not expect a Jew, a Jewish baker, to bake a cake with a swastika on it to celebrate the Nazi party's 100th anniversary. We would think that's atrocious. But for some reason, we feel like the culture's, uh, lo- some parts of the culture are saying, you damn well better be bake that cake for that gay wedding, even though you find it well, personally morally of- reprehensible. That strikes us as like, like, you got to be kidding. <laughs> One of the tendencies in political fundamentalism on the left and the right is is the, the striving for purity, right? It's a puritanism. I mean, puritanism has its right-wing strains and its left-wing strains. And one of the things you see, and I'm, I'm rephrasing something you said in, in the terms in which I would put it, right? Because I don't share your politics you know, exactly, and I'm not a Christian. But what I do see among many of my fellow liberals is this desire that everyone be not only mostly sympathetic, but 100% sympathetic and proving it all the time. And that we have to stamp out any dissent. So um, now, interestingly, we don't do this to groups we find exotic or quirky or ethnically intriguing. So the Amish, for example, we understand that the Amish, who are religiously quite conservative, right, who are evangelicals in a sense, right? Yeah. We understand they are going to be separatist and they're going to have very strict gender roles. And in many ways, they're not going to live in ways that progressives want to. But we give them space in America to do their thing because they're sort of grandfathered in as these interesting arts and craftsy people who don't use electricity and are off the grid. And, you know, we grandfather them in in a way that we don't when it's some suburban, southern-accented, evangelical Baptist, right? So the question is, how many groups are we going to make room for in America to do their own thing as long as in the public square we're basically good to each other? And I'll just say, I mean, this is your interview with you, not me, but I think Jews are particularly good at at compartmentalizing this because we understand that we're often interacting with people who think that we're going to hell. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, we understand that, you know, historically, anyway, uh, this has been a largely Christian culture, and most people think that we are in deep theological error. And yet, in America, most of them have been happy to do business with us, at least especially in the past five, six decades, happy to let us into their colleges, at least since the 1960s, increasingly happy for us to marry their children, right? Even as they believe— that we are in deep theological error. And we understand like those things can coexist, right? Yeah. But a lot of liberals don't want them to coexist. They want a sort of radical purity cutting into every household. Um, and I do think it's a problem. Yeah. So we, we would agree on that. And that would be one of the visceral reasons conservative evangelicals especially want to push back on uh, liberal culture is that just feeling of just having to conform and not being able to live according to our principles, and that every time we make a decision about how we're going to live, they don't take seriously our religious argument and our religious feelings about it. They just assumed it's prejudice, it's homophobia, it's racism, it's whatever, without actually seriously taking the argument we're trying to make at hand, which generally has to be a religious argument. So if uh, the progressive left can kind of get that in their head that the whole all America doesn't have to be like them, I think we could learn to live together. There have been other divisions in the House of America that have been just as radical. I mean, when Catholics came into the country, it was greatly feared by Protestants that they were going to start taking their orders from the Pope and all sorts of crazy stuff. We've learned to figure out how to live together, Catholics and Protestants. And I think we can learn to live together, progressive left, conservative right. Well, all the tensions go away? Of course not. This is America. <laughs> it wouldn't be America without tension. But I think we can do much better than we're doing. But we're not going to do better until we get past the Cheeto Jesus, as he's been called, Donald Trump. Your magazine called for his impeachment. Technically, I called for his removal. 
and impeachment. His removal, all, the f- conviction by the Senate was only one option right. of, of many. The full Monty, <laughs> the big Lebowski, the removal. Well, however yeah. we, right, yeah. however, whatever peaceable legal means uh, are, are necessary. <laughs> a lot of evangelicals, I could understand. I will, I will absolutely stipulate that there are good reasons if you are someone with conservative politics that you'd vote for the person who's going to implement more of those policies, even if the person is loathsome, right? I understand that position. I don't fully agree with it. And I agree with your the way you framed it, that he's simply too toxic to our culture, that actually it does more harm than good, even according to Christian standards. But I understand how someone could say, look, I just need pro-life justices. Give me pro-life justices. And right. right. But I expected that more evangelical leaders would say, I'm going to vote for him, but I'm going to hold my nose as I do it because obviously he's personally loathsome. Like that's something that a preacher can say. It's also something that, you know, a, a, a Christian journalist can say or a nonprofit. Where it's something Eric Metaxas, the, the Christian biographer of Bonhoeffer and radio host could have said. Um, It's something Hugh Hewitt could say. And they don't. They went all in and they now generally speak of him warmly. Why? Why wouldn't they just have said, look, obviously talking about grabbing a woman's genitals and insulting one's opponents and using Twitter to abuse people is obviously horrible, but I like his policies more. And so I'm making that compromise. What about that sort of obvious compromise rhetoric wasn't good enough or or didn't fit their mood? Yeah, that is a great question that I am still puzzling. To me, it can only come down to this deep visceral resentment of liberalism as they understand it. If we criticize the president at all, it only gives ammunition to the left. And if if the left has ammunition, guess what's going to happen? They're going to get Trump out of office. And if Trump gets out of office, it's a disaster for America. I mean, there there's a lot of apocalyptic thinking and language that uh, goes on. So, for example, the editor of the Christian Post, which wrote an editorial uh, against my editorial, you know, he says, basically, I'm an agent of the deep state, which is just another way of talking about a conspiracy theory about liberals in the government are trying to get rid of the president. It's like, come on, you could do better than that, can't you? (laughs) In terms of arguing with me? But that's where they immediately go. You're a Democrat, you're a liberal, you're speaking for the deep state uh, because they're so frustrated with liberalism. And they also, I think they, obviously as a centrist, I believe they way overreact to the power of liberalism to uh, inflict harm on them. I mean, they bring up incident after incident in which their religious freedom was checked by some liberal college administrator or some local government official. What they don't seem to keep reporting is that in nearly every one of those instances where their religious freedom was thwarted by some official, when it was taken to court, the courts basically said, what are you doing? You can't thwart their religious freedom. (laughs) They don't seem to understand. Yeah, there is some hostility toward Christians and what they want to talk about, but still at a legal level, we still pretty much win every religious freedom case that comes before one court or another. Mark, is some of it a frustration that actually evangelicalism seems to have peaked? Right. I think a few years ago, for the first time in a long time, the number of Southern Baptist baptisms was down year over year, that it seems to have peaked sometime in the in the late 90s. And now more and more young people who, who would have been evangelical or were raised evangelical are becoming you know secular but religious, or they're turning into yoga buffs or CrossFit, or they say they get their spirituality from nature. You know, they're doing what liberals do. Is some of it frustration that they can't figure out why the megachurch moment seems to have passed? Well, I think there's kind of a circular consequences going on with that, because I think a lot of young people have left evangelicalism because they've seen how compromised it's become, not only by American consumerism and by uh, a kind of psychologizing of the faith, but also by this political move toward the right. You know, I have to tell you that of these surprises, and there were many at the responses to this editorial, 
the one that has been most surprising and frankly pleasing is that we get emails and and phone calls from people saying, hey, I used to be a Christian. I used to be an evangelical. I used to be a believer. I'm an agnostic Jew. I am an atheist. But I read your piece and they'll say things like I started crying. <laughs> Because finally someone said something that I think evangelicals should be saying. In other words, they have been completely disaffected. They just have decided religion is not something they're going to even pay attention to because they saw the inconsistency of the of the evangelical movement that on the one hand decried the immorality of Bill Clinton and called for his departure from office, but wouldn't do that with Donald Trump. And it would, So I think that's part of the reality that's going on, is that people are leaving, have been leaving evangelicalism precisely because of this consistency. All right. So now you've explained evangelicalism and the history of the republic to us. You've solved many of our questions. Do you worry for my soul as a Jew? Does your Christianity require you to, to think that I should become a Christian? Well, of course. I, would, I wouldn't be an evangelical Christian if I thought otherwise. In fact, I belong to a Jewish evangelical dialogue in which my partner in that, Rabbi Yael Pupko, at the, he's at the Chicago Federation here in Chicago, he says, he tries to make it clear when, whenever we have conversations with his Jewish friends, he says, you can't say to evangelicals, you have to give up your desire that we would become Christians in order for us to have a meaningful dialogue, because that's part of what it means to be evangelical. So that doesn't mean I need to force it down your throat or that I have to start preaching to you all the time. But it tell, I would be lying to you if I failed to say that I think Jesus Christ, in fact, is the way, the truth, and the life, and that your life and everyone's life would be better if they gave themselves to Christ. See, I have no problem with that, Mark, because I'm an evangelical Jew. I think that you should become a Jew because you'd get better comedians. Uh, you would get more. <laughs> there is that? You'd get more holidays. <laughs> we have a lot. We have a lot more holidays. Your immigration to Israel, if things ever go really bad, you have a country you can go to that has a booming economy. I mean, we have a lot to offer. Eternal salvation might not be it, but in this world, I think we have a lot to offer. That's a very good way of putting it, because it is a Jewish. Uh, the Jewish faith is very concrete. It's very concrete in that regard. And that's what I love about it. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your writing and for your courage. And I thank you. It's been a pleasure. This was way different than most interviews I've taken. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about other things other than just the editorial. That's been great. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. 
And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a tablet member at tabletm.ag uo member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Tell me, tell me, in the day or the night, would it kill you to call or write? To the mailbox. Uh, first of all, we had some commentary on Facebook that basically was all about how I was making the comment last week that if someone like Bernie Sanders got the nomination, that on the one hand, it would look really good for Jews in America because, hey, in a really anti-Semitic country, you wouldn't have a Jewish nominee or Jewish president. But on the other hand, I said, he's not really that Jewish. He's not like living it. He's not doing it up. And I got attacked from both ends. And I want to I handle both of those because it came to the mailbox. It was on Facebook. First of all, some people said, what are you talking about? Just because Barack Obama was president doesn't mean there's no racism. Just because a president Sanders would be a Jewish president doesn't mean there wouldn't be anti-Semitism. To this one, I just want to say, well, I take your point. On the other hand, you're missing the really, 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 really big picture, right? Which is that in highly anti-Semitic countries, in places where Jews aren't even allowed into the country club or where there's still quotas at universities, they're not also electing Jewish presidents. So the big picture is it is a sign of progress in America that Barack Obama was an African-American who was elected president. Does that mean that a utopia was ushered in? Of course not. Does that mean that there's not going to be a backlash and that there are going to be problems we didn't foresee? Of course not. But in the big picture, that wouldn't have happened in 1960 or even 1970 or 80. And it did happen uh, with Barack Obama. And a Bernie Sanders as president would say that most people are at least okay with having a Jew as president. It wouldn't mean utopia otherwise. There could still be lots of anti-Semitism. Both things can be true. On the other hand, there are people who are saying, how dare I insinuate that because he's not going to shul all the time or because he's intermarried, that that means he's not a good Jew. And that is not what I was saying. I'm not saying that his marriage status or how much he goes to synagogue is what it's about. What I was saying about him and about Mike Bloomberg is it was really just a gut level Kishka's thing for me. Like, I don't know how much Ed Koch went to synagogue. Uh... But Ed Koch was Jewing it up. He was just, he was clearly a guy who was in touch with his Judaism as Joe Lieberman is. Look, Woody Allen is intermarried, but nobody doubts that Jewishness is an important part of his universe. I just don't know if it is. I, and I understand Mike Bloomberg has given to Jewish charities. I'm just saying, you know, Bernie Sanders is a guy who, describing his ethnicity, once said, well, I'm, I'm of Polish ancestry. It, it seems like it's something he was kind of running from for a time. It seems like, to me, I'm just, this is my gut level purely amateur hour estimation of these two men is they don't care that much about being Jewish. I could be wrong. I could be wrong, but it's not because of who they married or how often they go to synagogue. It's a much more primordial gut level thing for me. 
And now to some lighter stuff. Indeed, to people who like us so much that they want our advice. We get this letter. Love your podcast. I'd like to know what you all think about mezuzah necklaces. I recently was on Shop Goodwill and saw one for sale. Is this something that's been popular for a while and I've just never heard of them? What do you all think about them? Yours, Marnie. Uh, so these are necklaces that have a mezuzah with an actual scroll inside it, I guess, or maybe not. Yeah, so I consulted the experts, Marjorie Ingle and Alana Newhouse, at Tablet, and I said, is this a thing, a mezuzah necklaces? And they sort of say, like, yeah, mezuzah necklaces were a thing. Like, if I bought mitzvah years, there's a cloth in this one? Like, there's the tiny scroll? Like, that's that seems a little bit unusual. But my is it just that if you wear a mezuzah <laughs> necklace, it's sort of like the idea of where, putting mezuzah on your home. It's you like an amulet for protection. You are your own doorstep. I guess it's it's funny. I guess you, you kiss yourself it. whenever you go. I'm all for all this jewelry. Like there's the conversations that has sprung up based on like what should be we be wearing around our necks, particularly for Jewish women. I love this conversation, and I'm happy to do it. Certainly, no problem with mezuzah necklaces. The mezuzah is supposed to go on the doorpost of your house, and so the necklace is a kind of contemporary repurposing. So I don't know. Gay gazint, as they say. Be healthy. Go and be well. Yeah, kind of cool. Dear unorthodox. This post was in my son's Instagram feed a few months ago, posted by a classmate at a New York City public high school. The Instagram post is a screenshot. Somebody had written that one out of every 18 soldiers in the Israeli Defense Forces is a vegan, sort of saying it's a great place to be a vegan. And then someone else replied, one out of 18 Israeli soldiers are vegan, but 18 out of 18 are baby and child killers. Hashtag terrorism. I'm writing to ask how I should respond. My son privately texted his classmate to give her a heads up that she might not want to post something like this since it uses anti-Semitic tropes. So this was in the Instagram feed of a New York City public high school student. And it might have some anti-Semitic tropes. <laughs> like what maybe. Do you, so this is the interesting question. <laughs> so you're a mom. This is a question at the nexus of like parenting, social media, schools, PTO, I'm going to give a quick take. I didn't think this over deeply, and I'm I'm so open to correction here. I'm going to say, ignore this for two reasons. One, this is not something that the public high school did. This was not in school. This is somebody putting something up on their Instagram feed, presumably after hours, and that's not something you can control, what your son's friends do on their Instagram feeds. Number two... You can't solve the internet. Like, like this one happens to be from somebody your son is on the Instagram feed of. There are 18 trillion more coming to our email inboxes all the time, being lobbied at politicians, celebrities, the world. Don't go down the road of trying to solve Instagram. You can't whack-a-mole anti-Semitism on Instagram. So that's my take is bite your tongue and do nothing. I have to tell you, as a Mr. Bearded Gun-Toning Zionist Maniac, I, I kind of agree with that. Like, just get, get off Instagram. Like, step one, get off Instagram. Step two, choose friends who aren't anti-Semitic dicks. Step three, don't worry about the rest of the world. It's fine. I disagree. I mean, I think that when you're in a school environment and someone posts this thing and, and the response is, well, Israeli soldiers are doing bad things. I mean, how it's on then what, a 16-year-old to be able to say, actually, like, you know, criticize, there's ways to criticize Israel and Israeli policy without sort of calling Israeli soldiers baby killers. All, I mean, it's really, really hard. And the interesting thing I've seen when I've been on college campuses recently is the onus that's placed on these young Jews. Right. Which is horrible. To basically know, and I didn't know anything about Israel right. when I went to college. Plus, why is like, I couldn't have defended you, anything. Yeah, now it's like you really have to get really, really well versed in all this stuff so that you can, because look, the people who disagree with you are gonna are the ones posting those Instagrams, right? If, There's a very, very vociferous right. contingent who are critical of Israel and veer into anti-Semitism. Right, which is why if anything is to be done, maybe it's a note 
to the principal of that school to say, hey, look, man, that this exists, this kind of, you know, really vile, offensive shit exists out there in this community. Maybe you'd like to address it in some way. Here are some good suggestions, some resources, some people you could talk to. But it definitely should not be on some kid to come this up and problem. stand it's up hard. for yeah, Israel. It's, and yes, I mean, it's on your son and you. It's like, that's unfair. It's unfair. Here's one thing that this listener could do. I think it is a good idea, irrespective of what happens on Instagram. It's a good idea to give your kids, if you care about these things, right? Like a really strong, solid educational background. I think if they know what's going on, if they don't receive kind of like, you know, dribs and drabs from, from people all around them, if they have a very clear sense of what Israel is, what it means to them, you know, warts and all, what are the problems, what are the things to be, you know, incredibly proud of. I think these things sting less, you know. I think that at that moment, it just feels like another kind of misinformed trolling session on Instagram and less like a really disquieting, unsettling occasion. Amen. A couple more letters. We get a note from a British friend. Unless I was mistaken, I believe I heard one of the podcast hosts make reference to the supposed dwindling Jewish community in the UK. As a point of reference, the British Jewish community is not dwindling. Yada, yada. He goes on to tell us all the non-dwindling aspects of British Jewry. Rob Freudenthal. Rob, I was the one who said it. It was you. It was a joke. (laughs) It was a joke. But was it funny? I repent. It was a non-funny joke. Dear unorthodox, the British Jewish community is not dwindling. Signed, Jeremy Corbyn. (laughs) The British Jewish community is not dwindling. It is merely stepping back from itself to go indulge in other projects in Hollywood. I beg your forgiveness. A final letter. Hi, Stephanie, Liel, and Mark. Hello back. Love the podcast and thank you for what you do. I was raised Catholic and I'm interested in converting to Judaism. My beliefs align most closely with Reform Judaism, but I'm also considering conservative. There are two local synagogues I visited to consider conversion. The conservative synagogue offers classes on a rolling schedule, but the Reform class wouldn't start until August. My question is, would it be wrong to study for conversion through the conservative synagogue while still determining which I would want to join as a member? I have mixed feelings about conservative Judaism's views on interfaith marriages, as my longtime boyfriend is not considering conversion, but is very supportive of my choice. But I would not want my children's Judaism questioned later in life, which makes conservatives seem like the right choice. Any advice is appreciated. Thanks again for your work. Signed, E. I'd like to begin with a general comment here. There is no such thing as conservative Judaism. There's no such thing as reformed Judaism. There's only Judaism. Uh, you're, You're coming into the same tent, to the same soul, to the same spirit. You're coming back to the same home. Now, with that in mind, guys, what, what should we tell you? I hate this idea that you sort of have to choose. First of all, I think you should do the one with a rolling schedule, just practically <laughs> speaking. If you're waiting till August to start investigating if this is something you definitely want to do, right? And I think I do wish you wouldn't feel like you had to choose or that one wasn't good enough. I mean, I think the idea is that any conversion is good enough for us, right? And And is appreciated. And so... I think that I would say that you should start the one that's happening now, right? That's conservative. See if you like it, right? It's your, you don't, it's your journey. You don't. It's not like you need to like give a down payment on your first class that you're going to join the synagogue. Start it you're going to get. Yeah, then, I mean, then go to the Reform Temple in August. See how you like that. Then consider other shows. I mean, yeah. This I is mean, this really is how your, we make our process. decisions anyway today, right? You try one, you try the other. I mean, you should really try both and see which one feels more right to you. But I will say that I don't think children's Judaism would be questioned down the line. Um, I wouldn't worry about that. To be fair, right, to be fair, and I actually got in trouble 
recently on one of our episodes because I was dismissive of Orthodox standards of conversion. And I said they were basically what we're saying. I said to someone, look, you're Jewish by us because to us, a Jew is a Jew is a Jew. We're not in the business of questioning it. I think and you some said of our we're Orthodox, not the crazy people who care. Yeah. Uh, th- thanks. Thanks for reminding me about my- <laughs> Just wondering about what caused offense. Then I said that British Jewelry was dwindling. And some of our Orthodox listeners wrote in and said, hey, you know, we have particular standards that we think encourage learning, encourage a sense of Jewish unity. We have the standards that we believe are accepted by all Jews. Oh, and I, th- I think we were talking about patrilineal and matrilineal descent as well. And and they said, look, you know, don't be dismissive. We're not crazies because we have a particular understanding of this, which is the older understanding, and we still hold to it, and we welcome all people to join us on that understanding. And and I want to say, like, look, recognize that I think most conservative rabbis are not about to question your reform conversion and are not going to trouble your children. There are going to be Orthodox rabbis who are going to see neither of those as a valid conversion. So I just I just want to be clear: you're you're walking into, and of course, the state of Israel only recognizes Orthodox conversions. Should you you or your children ever want to move there? So you are stepping into a minefield. Sorry about that. Right. We apologize. But but, we can... but here's the thing: I mean, you're stepping into, as you call it, a minefield. You're stepping into the complexities of an alive, evolving religious yes. community. Of which you're now part. So embodying these tensions is is precisely what being Jewish is about. This is not unique to you. It's on all of us. I mean, yes, you may feel it more acutely, uh, but this is something that we all grapple with. I would just say, in addition to the rolling schedule, which I really find appealing, uh, if there's one rabbi who you particularly uh, feel closer to, I mean, that's going to be a person who's going to be really important in this process. So you might, you know, not only try out the schedules, but try out who's going to be leading you through the process and doing the classes and all that stuff. Good luck to you, E. We will be here for you. And if, if, the, if a great story comes out of it, let us know because our conversion episode is coming up this May, this Shavuot, yet again. Reach out to us. Reach out and touch us at 914-570-4869 or unorthodox at tabletmag.com. that time of the year. The Oscars are this weekend. We are here with writer and film critic Jordan Hoffman. He's going to tell us what we can expect Sunday at the Academy Awards and more specifically, the Jewish chef. (laughs) Welcome back, Jordan. Hello. Thank you for having me. Hello. Jordan, I assume that you have come here to offer us your apology for being so wrong about Jojo Rabbit, a masterpiece that you uh, failed to sufficiently adore. Jojo Rabbit is not a masterpiece. Jojo Rabbit is what they call a mixed negative. It's not a disaster, but it is not a good movie. A professional Can you critic say what, term. What, what is Jojo Rabbit again? I haven't seen it. Jojo Rabbit, which is nominated for Best Picture and a handful of other wow. awards. It's a, it's a swing and a miss. It's based on a book, a very serious book, that the writer-director, whose name is Taika Waititi, yes. who is, also goes by Taika Cohen, in case you were wondering. Basically, it's set in Nazi Germany, and it's like kind of a mythic town. You don't know where it is. And there's a little boy who is in the Hitler Youth. He's like seven, eight years old or whatever. And his imaginary friend is Adolf Hitler, played by Taika himself. And it's kind of a you know whimsical, satirical story of you know how hatred in, you know is used as a propaganda tool against children. And that aspect of it is pretty good. But then it tries to do it tries to ride two horses with one behind, as they say. To it ride two to horses with satiric- one behind. <laughs> I have never heard it's that. Two horses, one ass. Actually, in in the in the <laughs> non you know non PG thirteen yeah. version. I'll tell you. 
I'm going to start saying it, though. That's awesome. It's a pretty good expression. It's like overextending, right? You're yeah, it's to a little too overextended. It tries to ride to And horses. so it failed to melt your icy, cold, stony heart. Well, see, and then, so then the other shtick is, so he's a little kid, and what he discovers is that his mother is actually, his mother played by Scarlett Johansson, who is a Jewish woman. She's a, in the resistance in some capacity, and she's hiding in Anne Frank style, a young Jewish girl played by Thomas and Mackenzie, who is not a Jewish actress, but a wonderful actress. She's hiding in the attic somewhere. And so the little boy gets a crush on her. And there's like a lot of like, it's kind of a whimsical style, sort of a Wes Anderson-esque visual pop to it. I don't know. It's not like I'm the type of guy who holds, you know, one must be so serious about the show all the time. Like I understand sometimes satire is a good way to get these you know, tell these stories, but it just didn't connect for me. I it can, but look, what are you looking forward to about the Oscars? Well, there are nine films that are nominated for Best Picture, and Jojo Rabbit is the only one that is sort of in its text a, a quote unquote Jewish film. So I do come here with a degree of guilt that that's not the one that I'm stumping for. What are you stumping for? I, I really like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, yeah, good movie. Quentin Tarantino's sort of like love ode to late 1960s LA culture. Endless scenes of Brad Pitt driving around L.A. listening to the radio that I just find phenomenal, you know, and and sort of the stories of, of Roman Polanski and the, the Manson killing. And not that these are things to delight in, but sort of that whole. And his pecs, his pecs and abs are dreamy. Brad Pitt is a very handsome man. And he, he is probably, dreamy. if I was a betting man, he will win the best supporting actor this year, and deservedly so. He's very, very good in it. Leonardo DiCaprio is sort of a lead actor in the film. So that might be my favorite. I also really love The Irishman, which is uh, another one nominated for Best Picture. That's Martin Scorsese's- no, fake news. Two hours too long. It's a long movie, but you know what? When it deserves to be long, how, mu how much time do you spend <laughs> watching TV shows going, eh, this episode's no good, but next week will be better? You okay, do it so all the time. You got me there. I'm saying that The Irishman is a lengthy film, but it is worth the time, and it's wonderful. And Harvey Keitel is in it a little bit, so give it's a us, little bit Jewish. Give us, give us a dark horse. Give us some contestants in some category that's yeah. so Jewish, and we don't really know well, about Well, you know, what's interesting really is that the movie Joker, of all things, is in fact nominated for a bunch of awards. Is it Jewish? Well, Todd Phillips, who wrote and directed, is is a Jew. I don't know that we're proud of him, but he's he's and Joaquin Phoenix is technically Jewish. Is he? I love it when we have Jordan Hoffman on because it's the moment in any given show we have him on, you know, a couple times a year where we just throw all pretense to the wind and say all we care about is which celebrities are Jewish. <laughs> I mean, it's, just it's go, okay to we're do just Jew spotting. Oh yes, his mother was born in New York City to Ashkenazi <laughs> Jewish parents. Also, he acts his brains out in this. He, uh, you know, he does this weird voice. He's, you know, cock, you know, making noises. He, he, he starved himself. His ribs are poking out. These are the things that the acting branch reacts to and strongly. It's so, sort of the Christian Bale principle that if you starve yeah, yourself enough, you, you at least get a nomination. They just give you an Oscar. Yeah. So I. I what about the ladies? Who, well, who, yeah. Who let's like get there? to the ladies because Scarlett is nominated for Best Actress. Ooh, will she win? We love her. We <sighs> for love JoJo Scarlett. or for Marriage. For marriage, she's also nominated for JoJo for supporting, but that's, that's not happening. That's amazing. I, sir, she gets my vote for Marriage Story. She's phenomenal. Marriage Story. Marriage Story is a wonderful film, by the way. Tremendous movie. Very emotional. Noah Baumbach writing about his uh, divorce from Jennifer. It's so Jackson. uplifting, and if, too. And if you don't and, have enough sadness in your life, you should really watch right. it. It's a sad movie. I'll tell you this though. 
I went to see it without Sid, and I, I went to see it with a, a friend of mine, with my friend Liam, and I got back, and I said to Sid, I was like, you know what? If I wasn't going to get divorced before, I'm sure never getting divorced now. Like, yeah. we, are, we are in it to win it, baby. It's like, a, that div- divorce sucks. It's, it's a real emotional workout, but it does end in a place of, like, a uh, new day, you know? It's a, it's a real emotional workout. Part it, of It what ends, makes- I think, when the Emperor dies and uh, <laughs> Force is restored to the galaxy. Right. There are very few Star Wars connections to uh, Marriage Story, but part of the uh, special sauce is the music, which, of course, is composed by Randy Newman, one of Hollywood's finest Jews, uh, who is nominated for Best Original Score and may win this year. Yes. So that's nice. He's won before. Mm. Okay, so we're talking the about the The song is, you don't have a friend in me. <laughs> right. You have an enemy in me, <laughs> your ex-wife. Uh, okay, so nominated for Best Actress, Scarlett is probably not going to win. No. Because Renee Zellweger Ooh, as yeah. Judy, Judy Garland, Garland is sort of like, that's what Hollywood loves. She's playing a legend who's on pills at the end of her life and And singing. it's sort of like a comeback for her. Yeah, so she's the favorite. But Scarlett has my vote, and Saoirse Ronan is also nominated for the very good Little Women. Little Snubbed. Women is also nominated for Best Picture, but the director and writer Greta Gerwig got zetzed for Best Director. She was not nominated, which is a shame. Could we agree that women are the Jews of Hollywood and Jews are the women of Hollywood (laughs) when the Safdie brothers get snubbed and Greta Gerwig gets snubbed? Well, Sandler gets snubbed. was a great movie. The Safdie brothers story is a a true Shonda of the year, and I'm glad you brought it up. But uh, uh, Also, just supporting actress real quick, our girl Scarlett once again will not win for uh, Jojo Rabbit. Laura Dern will likely win for Marriage Story. She's very good as the as the sort of evil lawyer. But also uh, the young woman by the name of Florence Pugh, yeah. uh, British actress, is marvelous in Little Women. She's also in everything, Florence Pugh. She's an incredible actress. She's like 23 years old. She's dating a Jewish man. I knew you were going to say that. Zach Graff. <laughs> She's dating a Jewish man, and they're very serious. She could do better. And he's funny. There was a photo on Instagram. They went to like, I don't know, he took her to shul or something like that. Like she's she's in it. So it's great. I mean, she's incredibly talented. I think the picture but, was actually they were like eating bagels. Yeah, they took her to shul. <laughs> which, as he said, shul. Took her to shul. And well, the movie that's going to win is 1917, which is a decent film, but not a great film. Directed by Sam Mendes, British guy. Oh, are we calling Sam Mendes a British guy now? You mean a Jew? Is, is he? he? I don't think Sam Mendes is Jewish, is he? Oh my God, I'm shamefaced if I didn't know. So, I'm pretty certain he is. To the internet. This is literally like a podcast that could be us or neo-Nazis. Well, this is, <laughs> you know. Um, his mother is an according English According to Wikipedia, his mother's an English Jew. His father oh, is know. a Roman Catholic of Portuguese Creole descent. His mother's an English Jew. Yes, because Kate yeah, Winslet was married to a Jewish guy. He's in his Jewish library. One of us. First he of was, all, do I have to teach you everything? I'm so ashamed. I'm so ashamed. I didn't know. <laughs> 1917 is a good movie. It's not a great movie. Uh, and it's going to win? It's going to win Best Picture. Jordan Hoffman. Yes. Thank you. Many Mazel Tovs this week. First of all, we wish a Mazel Tov to Rabbi Judith Lazarus Siegel of Temple Judea, who has been chosen by the Miami Herald for its 2020 Florida Influencers series. This came in from someone who cares deeply about you, Rabbi Siegel, and we wish you a Mazel Tov. A big Mazel Tov to Dr. Rosa Abrahams 
whose research on Jewish liturgical chant and movement has just been published. Her husband, Seth, and her cats wrote to us that she's been a leader in this type of research and is making new strides in the musical theory world. So that's awesome. You know what else is awesome? The Yeshiva University men's basketball team has been ranked in the top 25 of Division Three men's basketball for the first time. Go YU. Do either of you know what their mascot is? They're the YU what? Falcons. I don't know. <laughs> I, I want to find out about this. The YU wild Menorahs. The, 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 the YU Amoraim. <laughs> Producer Josh Cross uh, informs us in our earbuds that they are the Maccabees. Go YU Maccabees. Of course. Oh, that's dumb. We should know that. We should know that. Although I think in, in true rabbinic fashion, they should have two mascots, Hillel and Shammai. And they and just they spend fight. the whole time fighting. And I'm also off to two members of the Cross family, his mama and his daughter, Jill and Violet, both had birthdays. Birthdays with a K. Happy birthday to you, Grandma Jill, Baby Violet. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send your thoughts to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call our listener line. It's always so much better when we can play those voicemails. They're just they're just warmer. They're more Hamish. We get to know you. We hear your voice. We hear you put your oomph into it. 914-570-4869. If you want to wear or carry Unorthodox, go to bit.ly slash unorthoshirt to find the latest in shirts, mugs, onesies, and so forth. Follow us on Instagram or on Twitter. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross. Our associate producers are Sarah fredman Eder and Elana Levinson. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Alan Lundy of the New Reformed Temple of Kansas City, Missouri, also known as the Super Bowl Championship Temple. And we come to you from Argo Studios, which produced the app used in Iowa. Shalom. Why did I say why did I say yes to this?